Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Thursday, February 11th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. How the UK variant of SARS-CoV-2 may have evolved inside just one human. Some dating apps are adding video components, but it's just another case of modern tech inventing something that has already existed for decades. Let's talk about the original recipe. And a German teenager has created a new MySpace. Not like a social media platform similar to MySpace. Literally, he recreated a functional clone of MySpace. And it's pretty awesome. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, has the potential to mutate in every person it infects. And it often does. Of the over 100 million people worldwide who we know have gotten it, they've provided thousands of mutations. But we only hear about the big mutations because most of those are fairly benign. They don't lead anywhere. But sometimes the mutation is powerful, changing enough about the virus to make a difference, and importantly, spreading with that mutation to other hosts, eventually leading to an all-out new variant. Wired explains this really well, quote, Usually SARS-CoV-2 mutates slowly. We can watch this happen, with single letters changing one at a time in a viral genome that contains almost 30,000 letters. But in one great leap, the UK variant picked up 17 of those changes. Eight of them happened in the gene that encodes the spike protein, the hook the virus uses to latch onto and enter human cells. If the genome of SARS-CoV-2 was a 30,000-character-long poem, then the UK variant rewrote its first line, drastically changing its meaning in the process. End quote. But how did this happen? What caused this UK variant, also known as B117, to be so drastically different? The leading theory, Wired writes, is that it all came from one person. One person who was infected for so long that the variant had the time to evolve into a more infectious version. More than 360,000 SARS-CoV-2 genomes have been sequenced, and half of them are from the UK. But that's largely because the UK sequences so much, roughly 10% of all of its positive COVID-19 tests. Now, because they sequence so much, we're not completely sure that the new variant did come from the UK, because a lot of other places it was identified in early on don't sequence as readily as the UK. But considering most of the other countries its president have strong travel links to the UK, it's still the most likely suspect. Throughout the fall and into the winter, this new variant, B117, became the dominant strain in some parts of the UK. And it's pretty unusual for a variant to become the dominant strain, especially so quickly, in any kind of viral outbreak. For it to happen, and so quickly, epidemiologists had three possible theories. First, the virus mutated abroad and was only detected once it was in the UK. Second, it emerged through recombination, which is when viruses, quote, swap parts of their genome with other viruses from similar strains, bringing in a set of mutations all in one go, end quote. Neither of those really hold up, however. The former, for the reasons I mentioned previously with regards to sequencing, and the latter because evolutionary biologists have been unable to find any ancestor strains that would have been present for recombination. Which leaves the third theory— The variant evolved inside of just one person. Now, a quick refresher that's important for all of us to remember, even beyond this story. Most people have COVID-19 symptoms for two weeks. In more mild cases, people are usually no longer infectious after just 10 days. 
But then there are the people for whom COVID-19 lasts much, much longer. Months longer. One man studied at the University of Michigan had it for 119 days, and scientists were able to document genetic changes the virus was undergoing during the duration of his infection. And this isn't something unique to SARS-CoV-2. There have been documented cases of people remaining infected by Ebola, norovirus, and polio for months and even years after they recovered from symptoms. These cases are rare, and the individuals tend to have one thing in common— compromised immune systems. The man who had SARS-CoV-2 replicating inside of him for 119 days was undergoing chemotherapy at the time. Quoting again from Wired, People with weakened immune systems provide viruses like SARS-CoV-2 with a unique environment. Instead of clearing an infection quickly, an immunocompromised person might only partially wipe out an infection, leaving behind a population of genetically hardier viruses that rebound and begin the cycle all over again. In these people, a virus can evolve at remarkable speed. Since SARS-CoV-2 infects cells relatively quickly, in most cases, it enters a host, replicates, and then swiftly infects someone else, leaving little time for the virus to acquire many genetic changes. When the virus enters the body of someone who is already immunocompromised, their body is constantly applying evolutionary pressure on the virus, pushing it to evolve into new, and in some cases, more infectious forms. End quote. So that is likely what happened to create B117, and possibly some of the other strains we're seeing take hold around the world. Now, there are a few ways to potentially mitigate this happening more. More sequencing can help, both to identify the source and learn more so that treatments and vaccines can be adapted. It might also help to reduce the use of convalescent plasma, except in cases where immunocompromised patients can be effectively isolated, because at least one case in a chronically infected person showed that the plasma may have precipitated some of the mutations. But the biggest thing that we can do is simply get the virus under control and reduce the probability here. It's probably not a huge coincidence that we're seeing strains emerge in nations that have struggled to control the virus effectively. Emma Hodcroft, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Bern who works on Next Strain, an open source project that tracks the genetic changes of SARS-CoV-2 and other pathogens, said, quote, These are all edge cases, but if you have enough people infected over a long time, you run the risk of hitting those edge cases. End quote. All right, let's have a bit of levity after all that COVID talk. So we can joke all we want about every app having stories now. I mean, I'll never stop laughing about a tweet early on in the trend joking that pregnancy tests now have stories. But seeing people's faces, seeing people in motion, it's a tried and true method for relating to our fellow humans. In some ways, it's a no-brainer that some of the biggest dating apps like Tinder, Hinge, and Bumble have added video chats or stories-like features. Getting to see someone move and maybe speak is a bit more real than overly filtered selfies and heavily edited pithy captions. That realization, however, is nothing new, and it dates back far further than stories' origin on Snapchat or even streaming videos or video conference calls. At least in terms of dating, the concept has its origins back in the 1970s with video dating via VHS tapes. Now, if you're in Gen X or older or just spend a lot of time on the weird parts of the internet like I do, this won't be news, but it's still always fun to reflect on. 
Vox recently profiled the preeminent, although not first, company behind video dating in the U.S. in the 1970s through the mid-90s, a company called Great Expectations. The way it worked is you would apply for membership, and once you're in, and coughed over a good deal of money, eventually a couple hundred to a couple thousand bucks, you fill out a paper profile about your interests, values, and what you're looking for in a partner. Then you would go into a nearby Great Expectations franchise location for a photo shoot and video interview, which would get added to the company's library. Then you get to flip through other people's photos and profiles, organized into categories so you could do a bit of manual filtering. You then watch the videos of some of your favorites and eventually select one or more to be contacted. That person then gets the chance to review your profile and video interview, and if you both mutually consent, you get each other's contact info and take it from there. There were eventually higher tiers and add-ons, like being able to keep your identity hidden, a popular option for celebrities, or sending private messages before mutual consent was given for an extra price. And if all of that sounds like a pretty similar process to online dating, albeit with an extended timeline and outdated technology, that's because it was video dating in the 70s that really established other forms of matchmaking technology that came after it. Don Shepard, an English professor at Boise State University who has researched the origins of online dating, says it was the first time that a matchmaking service really offered the ability to browse, at least as intimately as was possible with the video medium. As Vox paraphrases a contemporary magazine's review of the video dating service, quote, The beauty of video dating was the impact of seeing someone alive on the screen, talking about himself honestly and openly. Plenty of people had marvelous personalities that would not typically show up on a written questionnaire. Only in a video profile could those personalities shine. End quote. And like early matchmaking websites, more recent swiping apps, and changes we're seeing throughout the pandemic, Shepard says video dating really evolved due to the convergence of two separate trends. Quoting again from Vox, on the one hand, these services sprang up right as VCR technology was entering the mainstream, which meant that making and sharing videos was easier than ever. At the same time, the cultural revolutions of the 1960s had cleared the way for a new openness to relationships and dating. A few other dating businesses had sprouted up beforehand, namely a late 19th century service called The Wedding Ring Circle, which sold photo books that listed out singles in the area and their hobbies. But the pace of innovation accelerated in the middle of the 20th century, and in the 70s and 80s, all these dating services pop up, said Shepard. There was a company called Dinner Work that would arrange dinner parties where people would meet. There were travel agencies that would do singles travel. Some computer dating services were also cropping up, although they were extremely limited in scope. End quote. And there were a number of video dating companies over the years, but the one with real longevity that most people knew by name was Great Expectations, founded by Jeff Ullman when he was just 26. Great Expectations, apart from perfecting the product and process, seems to have sustained itself thanks to pretty aggressive marketing. Ullman estimates they sent over a billion mailers throughout the company's tenure. They were good at addressing some of the stigmas associated with video dating head-on in their marketing and didn't stray away from, perhaps, unorthodox methods. Ullman recounted to Vox how they used to print ads on small cards to hand down at bars, but the cards said, Bars hate us, referencing how you don't need to go meet people at bars if you can meet them via video dating. I just love that Ullman seems to have pioneered the Doctors hate him style of clickbait. 
And despite effectively putting most other video dating sites out of business, Great Expectations couldn't withstand the popularity of online dating sites like Kiss.com and Match.com that emerged in the mid-90s, which borrowed a lot of the same methods, but were much more convenient and anonymous. No need to walk into a physical office. Ullman now runs a CBD shop, which seems about right somehow. But the methods that the video dating industry pioneered live on in most of the dating apps we use now. After all, as Shepard said, while developers might not have created modern dating apps explicitly with video dating in mind, quote, I think in some cases you can draw a direct line from video dating to contemporary online dating and contemporary dating apps, end quote. And at the very least, it's really fun to watch the real and parodied versions that remain today. Just search Video Dating 80s on YouTube and you'll have a great time. Well, speaking of blasts from the past, MySpace in its original form is back. In an unauthorized capacity, anyways. I mean, MySpace itself never left, technically. It went through a number of extreme rebrands over the years, like when Justin Timberlake bought it in 2011 as part of its attempt to really become a hub for musicians, which was a fair gamble considering MySpace was for sure a revolutionary part of how a whole generation of musicians got their start online. The real MySpace is still up, and if you're one of the one billion people who never deleted their profile, you can even still visit your profile. It just looks totally different now. But if you want the true OG experience, the one that reigned as king from 2005 to 2008 when MySpace was the largest social networking site in the world, back when you could customize your background and share your favorite song with your top eight, well, the dream is alive thanks to a German 18-year-old named Ann. Called Space Hay, it looks almost exactly like MySpace did at its height around 2007. Statuses, moods, bulletins, HTML customization, and of course, your top eight. Ann was barely born when MySpace first emerged, but he knew enough about it to want to recreate it, looking for a place online that focuses on community and creativity more so than data collection and marketing. Even though a number of former scene kids and folks who were MySpace famous back in the day are excitedly returning to Space Hay for the nostalgia kick, plenty of Gen Zers are finding a home on there as well. Quoting Vice, the alt community is thriving on Space Hay, and it's cross-generational. Part of the platform's appeal can be accredited to the growth of new subdivisions of emo and the wider emo revival, encompassing not only music, but also fashion and TikTok trends. Blend this with general Y2K nostalgia under the 20-year cycle, plus the influx of new distinct aesthetics from e-girls to cottagecore, and you have the recipe for why Gen Z yearn for the MySpace experience they missed the first time around. End quote. Apart from the music crossovers and some members of the younger generation's fascination with the early days of the social media era internet, a lot of them also love the customization and personalization that has been totally stripped from major social media platforms these days, and therefore many of them never experienced. I mean, remember when you could even customize your YouTube channel with whatever color and fonts you wanted? The internet used to be so chaotic, and I miss it. 
I'm not the only one, though. There seems to be a real desire by many to divest from the major social media platforms and from algorithms, returning to or creating spaces on the internet that are purely for expressing yourself or indulging in your actual interests, not the ones that algorithms think you have. Just a more creative and happy place, not one saturated with ads and misinformation. At least that's what Space Hay users who spoke to Vox say. And yeah, I was in high school when MySpace launched, so it's no real shocker that I love Space Hay. I also happened to reboot my iPod Classic a few weeks ago and have been mainlining 60 gigs of pure nostalgia in the form of early aughts indie rock ever since. I also dug out my old non-smartphone to possibly start using again. I'm in deep, and Space Hay is completely enabling me, but maybe in a positive way? If you want to dive in as well, you can sign up for your own account on Space Hay. You can add me, at JackIsNotABird, and uh, maybe I'll even add you to my top eight. Well, that is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'm going to go spend several hours stressing out over the best song to embed on my Space Hay profile. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.